revolutionary set of technologies. Manipulating the outcomes at the atomic level. Anomalous magnetism. We do live in the age of miracles. Oh. About qubits is they can be in different states at once. Quantum captures people's imagination. The greater mission, which is to bring that real new capability to army. Exploring and harnessing emerging technology for the land force is a story of successful failure and immense triumph. Over this series, I'll be speaking to the movers and shakers who are leading into the future with innovative approaches and groundbreaking technologies. We'll explore diverse topics like how artificial intelligence can support and protect the lives of our soldiers, or how vehicles and platform electrification can provide an edge. I'm feeling really excited today to be joined by three of Australia's leading quantum technologists, Lieutenant Colonel Marcus Doherty, Professor Brant Gibson, and Dr. Richard Taylor. Marcus leads Army's exploration of quantum technology, is an esteemed senior fellow at the Australian National University, and is the co-founder of Quantum Brilliance, as well as being an Army officer. Marcus has brought a huge depth of knowledge to Army and pioneered the Quantum Technology Challenge and Quantum Next Generation Challenge series, supporting partnerships between sovereign quantum technologists and Army. Professor Brant Gibson is currently in the joint roles of Assistant Associate Dean, Physics, RMIT University, Deputy Director of the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for Nanoscale, Biophotonics and Deputy Director of the Sir Lawrence Wackett Centre for Defence at RMIT University. Dr Richard Taylor is an Assistant Professor at the School of Electrical Engineering and Robotics within the Queensland University of Technology. His research is focused on applied superconductivity in the fields of power, communications and instrumentation. During our conversation, we explore how Army and academia are collaborating to give Army the edge it needs in the critically important field of quantum technology. Marcus, Brandt and Richard, thanks for joining me. A pleasure. Yes, definitely. Yeah, pleased to be here. So to begin, same question for all three of you. And Marcus, I will start with you. Can you explain quantum technology in easy to understand language? Well, I'll give it a try. <laughs> So um, how would a science magazine explain quantum technology? Yeah. So what it would say, would it would say that um, quantum technology exploits the most fundamental laws of the world to do something that is currently impossible, a new function, a new performance level, something that we can't access using the technologies of today. The problem with that is it doesn't really help explain what quantum technologies are. Mm -hmm. So a way that uh, a quantum technologist would explain quantum technology is that it's a technology that uses and engineers quantum systems to do something that can otherwise not be done. And quantum systems are individual atoms, individual particles of light, uh, things like superconducting materials uh, and others. And by exploiting that new thing, the quantumness, we can do things we can't otherwise do. Look, to me, I just wanted to follow on from what Marcus just before, said before. I think, I think it really looks at the intrinsic properties of materials and takes those materials to their advantage. So using light and using individual atoms to do things that conventional materials can't do. We hear the term um, quantum computing. And so when we're talking about atoms and those sorts of things, how does that work in quantum computing? 
Yeah, sure. So um, I'll lead in there, Brent, and, um, and you can add to that one. So um, uh, quantum computing is one of the different ways you can exploit quantum technology. So broadly, there's four different types of quantum technology. The first one is quantum computing uh, and simulation. The second one is quantum sensing and imaging. The third is quantum communications and cryptography. And then the fourth is the enabling technologies that actually allow you to build and uh, exercise those other three types. And what ARMY is also interested in are those technologies that are countermeasures, those things that actually disrupt and deny and sabotage those other three types of technology. Okay, so Richard, you've been sitting over there quietly when you explain quantum technology. What's the sort of language that you use? I, I'd use the similar language that, that Marcus was using. And, and because it's down at the atomic level, then you can start to think about manipulating the outcomes at the atomic level. So I'm an engineer, and engineers think in big macro ideas, thermodynamics, strength of materials. Uh, a lot of that is coming from a heritage which is 200, 300, 400 years old. With thermodynamics in particular, it's the model of hundreds and thousands and millions of atoms, and it's a general description of what's going to happen. Why is the pot boiling? Why do things change phases? But with quantum, you can get down to individual atoms and get away from the ensemble, as that's called, and see, ah, here's new phenomena that, that appear from smaller groups of atoms that are not part of everyday world. And those smaller things, those smaller phenomena, is where the magic comes from for quantum technology, which Marcus was referring to. And so that's the exciting opportunities, and it's very early days. I think it's important to say that. I don't think, when we're talking about quantum technologies, I don't think we should pretend that it's, that it's only, you know, it's like it's just the start of the thing. Um, we've got atomic energy and all that sort of thing, but, you know, that's not so old either. That's almost, well, it is exactly a quantum phenomena. And so in that context, this is pretty exciting to, to be involved in it at this stage. Brent, I can see you there just feverishly nodding away with a massive <laughs> smile on your face. Uh, yeah, look, I just yeah, just wanted to sort of double down uh, on what Richard was just talking talking about there. There's there's huge potential by accessing these individual atoms in, in certain materials, but there's also a number of challenges. It's, it's not an easy exercise, but there's a huge potential and a huge power um, opportunity in terms of what those atoms um, can sense and detect. Marcus, can you remember your first quantum wow moment when you were learning, looking, studying, inquiring? and you just went, wow. Yeah, sure. So I think it is often the one that most people uh, struggle to come to grips with and they go, wow, this is actually real. So this stupendous thing that I've been learning at university is actually real and actually is something you can see and observe, you can feel. You can't smell, but mm. you can otherwise experience it. And what that is, is uh, in my world, they're called quantum jumps. And so you've got 
your qubit, which is the fundamental unit of a quantum computer, just like you have bits for classical computers. The thing about qubits is they can be in different states at once. So just like a transistor can be either zero or one, it can't be both. A qubit can be both. Uh, and what does that mean? It means that you can manipulate it like it's in both, which gives you that ability to store more information and the ability to more efficiently manipulate that information than you can on a classical computer. But when you come to get the information out of the quantum computer, it only gives you a zero or one. And so that experience of doing all this manipulation and then it just gives you back a zero or it gives you back a one and then you manipulate it in a different way and it gives you back a one or a zero. But the only way it could have got to that next set of ones and zeros is if it had already always been in both one and zero that whole time. And that's where you start to go, oh my God, this is actually real. Yeah. This is what's happening. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I'm going to ask you, Brent, as well, your, your first quantum wow moment. Oh, look, it actually, it brings me back to some work we did about 15 years ago when we, uh, for the very, very first time, from my, my perspective, saw uh, that we could generate single photon emitters, so single particles of light from atomic defects within a diamond crystal. And so we're shining light onto this material. We're collecting the, uh, the light that's given off from this, from this diamond, this very, very special diamond sample. We're sending those, uh, those photons, those individual particles of light down an optical fiber, and we're shown, uh, sending those to two different detectors. And for the very first time with my own eyes, we were able to see single photon uh, creation and single photon detection from uh, a very, very special atomic defect or, or color center inside a diamond uh, crystal. And that was about 15 or so years ago for me, and, and I still remember that day vividly. Yeah, I can feel your passion <laughs> and excitement. Yeah, Richard? For, for me, it, it was in microwave communications. I was developing high temperature superconducting filters. Uh, if communications filters are made from metal, as the electromagnetics goes through, there's always losses. And I wanted to make a filter with many, many resonators in it, so that it had very high performance, very narrow performance, but also what's described as very low insertion loss. That is, when you, when you put the filter in the way of the signals coming through, it just does the job of filtering out what you want without taking away too much of the energy. That's called insertion loss, the loss from the insertion. And so I had a, a filter, designed a filter, we put it in on a, on a cooler, it was at room temperature, it was coming down to operating temperature, there was nothing, 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 and then almost growing like a fast-growing mushroom, the signal came up on the instruments and the, the expected insertion loss was, oh, I'd have to talk dBs, <laughs> something like 12 dB, which is a very big number, that's a lot of losses. And the insertion loss was 0.1 of a dB, so it was sort of many hundreds of times smaller, but doing exactly what a metallic filter would be doing, but it was really all the attributes of, of superconductors, which are fundamentally quantum materials. Mm. I should imagine that 15 or 20 years is a long, long time in quantum technology. What's been the most recent wow factor for you? Brant, I'll start with you here. I think what's happened in the last few years has been, been amazing. Honestly, the, the rise of, of quantum technology over, over the last 
I mean, quantum technology has been in, in an academic environment, I think, for, for many, many years. But to see the number of, 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 of companies and industries and uh, uh, that are forging, to he forging ahead with trying to develop and, and take quantum, the, the mysterious quantum technology out of an academic institution or a government lab and trying to take that into the real world. To me, that has been a wow, a wow moment. And I think it's events like uh, 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 this Q QTC challenge, this quantum technology challenge. Uh, has has gone a long way to helping a lot of those quantum technologies come out of that academic institution. So it's more that the rise of quantum technology yeah. for me over the last few years. And we'll certainly learn more about the challenge shortly. Marcus, how about for you, modern day quantum technology wow factor? Yeah, so uh, certainly uh, there has been some definitive wow moments for Army over the last few years since, since it began its quantum technology challenge program. The first real wow moment uh, was in 2021, where we had a team use a quantum magnetometer, so that's an incredibly precise machine for measuring magnetic fields. It detected a train carriage over 90 metres under the ground. Uh, it also detected sort of rifle size objects quite easily a couple of metres under the ground. And so this had a transformative effect on the mindset of Army, which was these technologies are no longer something of science fiction. They're something which are being used right now uh, in the field to detect things that we can't detect as an army. And we need to get on top of this. Otherwise, we are going to be left behind. Um, this is a technology we want. It's a technology we don't want used against us. Um, so that was one of the big ones. The second wow moment happened in 2022 where uh, we uh, had a team investigate quantum machine learning. And I think that that was also another change completely in perception about how a technology can deliver advantage, uh, can be better than existing technologies. So that one last year, they showed that quantum machine learning was more resilient to adversarial attacks and noise in the environment at classifying features and images like is this a stop sign or is it a yield sign or is it a um, give way sign or something like this um, compared to classical machine learning. Uh, so that's machine learning run on a classical computer versus a quantum machine learning. So what does that mean? It means that if we use quantum computers to do interpret our images, they're intrinsically more resilient against people trying to spoof them or trying to degrade our ability to perceive the environment compared to classical technologies. And that was another significant wow moment. This then leads into being very important to Australian Army and the manner in which it detects adversaries. These conversations up and down the chain of command must have been really interesting, I would imagine. Yes, it was, it was everyone from Chief of Army, Chief of Navy, all the way down to soldiers. And so I think an event like the Quantum Technology Challenge, which Army runs, where um, teams try to develop a solution to a particular problem that Army poses them, um, and then come and demonstrate it to a very broad audience, enables that reset, which is people get to experience that seminal moment in a technology where all of a sudden it's real, it's doing something relevant to us, and sometimes we get surprised. My God, it's doing something we didn't think was possible, we need to think differently. And the teams who come and participate also get that incredibly important moment where they go, well, who are these people? What do they care about? 
oh, actually, there's things that our technology could be doing which isn't this, but could deliver so much more value to these people and their mission. You've mentioned two things that you discovered. With the challenge of going outside to industry to say, we've got this problem, can you help us solve it? What would be an example of one of those problems that you have gone out and said, okay, here's what we've got, can you help us, can you come up with something, can you build something, develop something that can solve that problem? Yeah, sure. So one example uh, is, can you help us see things that are underneath the ground? And so indeed, Brant was one of the teams that responded to this challenge, and I'll hand over to him in a second. And so that was a genuine need, which is, at the moment, we find it very difficult to see things which are deep underground or in urban terrain and these sorts of things, because um, we don't have an otherwise means. We can't use visible light, we can't use radar, we can't use infrared to see these things. Uh, and so we needed something fundamentally new. And this is one of the challenges we put out there. So, Brant, maybe you want to talk us through that one. Yeah, look, thanks, Marcus. Uh, yes, yeah, so a couple of years ago, 2021, I was part of a part of a team called uh, Quantum Diamond Magnetometry that was headed up by the University of Melbourne in partnership with uh, RMIT University and Phaser Innovation. And, and we responded to this challenge uh, at the time to uh, explore the possibility of, of the quantum sensing technology that we'd been developing in an academic uh, and industry team but uh, it really wasn't until we, we came to this QTC event and you know, talked to, to, to people like Marcus here um, and other, other participants at the event, so really we could sort of hone in on the full potential of our sensor, sensor technology. Uh, so it was a it was a, it was an amazing uh, opportunity, and and uh, and and we're we're very we're very and we and we're, we're really spawned a program of work as part of this team. Uh, that's continued into the future. And if it, if it wasn't for this QTC event, yeah, we wouldn't be still doing the work that we're doing today. Yeah, so Brian, I think that opens up um, uh, a very important uh, other outcome of that challenge, which was because Army was shocked, my God, there are these things out here that can do this, and we immediately turned to think about, well, how can we hide from this? How can we conceal ourselves from these new technologies which are coming out? Uh, and we ran what's called a Quantum Next Generation Challenge, which is a challenge focused on early career researchers, students uh, and entrepreneurs to say, OK, this group of people, can you now solve this new problem that we've discovered? Uh, and indeed, this is where Richard's story begins with a, a talented young man called Tim Cosgrove, who was one of Richard's students. So, Richard, maybe can you talk us through this? Yes, so we were looking at um, the magnetic signatures of, of large and small things that, that Marcus has been referring to. And I've had a great interest in, in magnetism and it, it ties into superconductivity very well. Some of the early workers in, in superconductivity wanted to call um, the, the phenomena of superconductivity anomalous magnetism. And I think that's, it's, it's a nice description of the, of the things we're learning more and more about superconductivity. So we were looking at how do you make something which has got uh, a signature which disturbs the Earth's magnetic field, which can be detected by very sensitive detectors. And that led us into thinking all sorts of extra things. Um, do you want to make it completely disappear or would you like to make it look smaller? Would you like to make it look bigger? And so we are going through this thinking process now 
really just coming to terms with what's required, first of all, to return the picture of an, of an observer from some distance to something is it magnetically that is not disturbed, and then it's a bit of a chicken and egg where as the sensitivities of the detectors change, then the algorithms and the thinking of the magnetic counter-response has to keep up with that. And then the other aspects that I was referring to. You might want to look slightly different to what you really are, perhaps. And so what led you down the path right from the start? What, what was the initial conversations that you were having? Talk about, well, can we do this and how far can we take it? Well, the, the conversation was focused, first of all, on the challenge. So Marcus does all the hard work. He has to think of all these things. Um, and so then we've got a starting point. But we, we were given, and, and people are given, free reign to really look at it from as many different angles as possible. And so that's, that's really the approach we took. How can we look at it from all different angles? Being aware of whatever solution might come up with today, it has to be agile enough to deal with what might come up in the future. The quantum sensing you're talking about must go hand in hand because we're sending back images of something bigger or smaller. Using the technology, you have to say, yes, it is bigger or smaller and then communicate as to what that is. That, that's right. And I think um, you know, just following on from what Marcus said before about this object, this challenge of object identification you know, below the surface of the Earth, uh, there were a lot of things that this uh, quantum diamond magnetometer team had to think through in terms of that particular challenge. In terms of the, the sensitivity of the material, the standoff distance, um, you know, the, the operation in, 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 a, in a very sort of challenging uh, domain. Uh, there was a number of things that we've, we've, we've had to think of uh, uh, at the time for that particular challenge, but definitely um, into the future as well. And, this, but we're, we're lucky um, in a way that the, the sense of material that we've, we've really focused on over a large number of years is based on, on quite a, a robust and, and um, a sturdy material. And I, I mentioned this, that this material before has, has been diamond. So it's a very robust material, but to, to take a full advantage of that diamond as a quantum sensing material, there's a number of other uh, sort of elements that we need uh, to, to develop to be able to talk to that quantum sensing material, like lasers, for example, electronic circuits, and, and those sorts of things. So that we've had to think through many, many things, um, but at the same time, we're definitely thinking about countermeasures. So on the one hand, we're trying to develop the sensor, improve its performance, to, um, improve its range of operation, but at the same time, we're also very, very conscious of being aware of what may potentially um, negate or uh, uh, detract from the quantum sensing potential. Yeah, and so how important are the conversations in around using that technology, but also understanding how it can be used against us? Yeah, so that is critical from the beginning. And so not just in a military sense, but it's also critical to the development of the technology. So, for example, if Brandt here is trying to uh, develop his magnetometer in order to delineate m mineral deposits under the Earth instead of looking for tanks or other big magnetic objects that Army has, then he needs to expose his sensor to an incredibly adverse environment, which is the Australian outback, um, and also very complex uh, environments in urban terrains if he's rather looking for civil services 
uh, wires and these sorts of things under the ground. Uh, and so by having that competition between countermeasure technologies and technologies, uh, it basically give, keeps each of them honest. Uh, and also builds in a culture of really understanding and overcoming the adversity and understanding the limitations of your technology and developing ways to use it, which you would otherwise not do because you're not facing you're not facing the foe across the street each day. Mm. And so what are the conversations in the private sector that you're having in your sort of inner sanctums and work groups in and around the adversary element? I think it really follows on from what Marcus just mentioned in terms of better understanding of the environment that you need to operate in. And I think, uh, and I think it's, it's through conversations, it's through getting out to various locations, being aware of those operational constraints or requirements. I think the more questions we ask and the more listening we do uh, as a community, I think we can better understand um, and, and, and really identify the competitive advantage of, of quantum, quantum technologies, in particular quantum sensing is the area that, uh, that we're focusing on. Yeah. Yes, I think along with quantum technology, we do live in the age of miracles of new materials, uh, which are heavily driven by people understanding fundamental metallic structures and they'll continue to change. The Earth's magnetic field is not a static thing either. So th there's a number of variables that are moving around all the time. And the sensors are part of this ecosystem, which are constantly interacting. Marcus, the potential of quantum technology has been on government and defence radar for quite some time now. What's the relationship between defence and then private sector and how are you going out and getting the experts and showing them that there is opportunity to work together to create products and services? The current situation in quantum technology is that there is a sense of great potential here, that this technology, through giving that leaps in sensing or computing or communications, will do things for the world which other technologies haven't, uh, and will be a revolutionary set of technologies, akin to what the semiconductors were for the last century in terms of new computing, new devices, new ways to observe the world and these sorts of things. So there's a sense here that we're in a similar sort of tipping point like there was with semiconductors and computing last century. But no one really knows what for. What is it actually going to be used for? So people don't realise that the first transistors weren't used for computers, they were used for hearing aids. And that's actually what delivered real advantage to people using those early transistors. We're at that stage with quantum technology, which is what is our hearing aid? What is going to be that first thing that these new suite of technologies will deliver real value in? Uh, and so if I now come from a military perspective, uh, that forms a very clear strategic thesis, which is the military that discovers the first truly valuable and disruptive use case of using these technologies will be the military which gets a decisive advantage from these technologies. So how Army is focused is we are trying to rapidly test and evaluate and work our way through as many applications of these technologies as we can so we can be the first to discover those which are most valuable and disruptive. And that's what things like our quantum technology challenge programs do. And then what does that mean though? It means that Industry and academia have a customer who just says, show me it. Make it do stuff. 
I don't care how much gaffer tape it has on it. I don't care, you know, if it's held together by uh, Lego. You need it to make it do stuff so that you can show me whether or not we're on the right path with this application. What that hopefully does is it overcomes a critical inertia in new technology, which is the inertia of someone saying, I want this. I think it's valuable. I'm prepared to pay to see it, regardless of just quite how messy it might be in these early stages. Once that, over, once that inertia has been overcome, what you find is that private investment, public investment, private customers, then can see that something's possible here and they can put in their money, they can put in their expertise and these technologies will take off and army or the military will then benefit from that because we can't do it all. We need the help of a whole industry, a whole country to make these things happen. Hmm. So if we can stimulate something that ultimately yields that technology that we can then benefit from, then that's our mission achieved. And so that's how we see our interaction uh, with the new industry, which is the quantum industry. So we go over to the other side of the desk and Brant and Richard are armed with their Lego and their load-bearing gaffer tape. <laughs> and you're representing both private sector, defence industry and academia. So that must be just hugely exciting to have a, those sorts of goals to work towards. Yes, it's good to, to really bring the students through as rapidly as possible to, to make them aware of these things. They like to be inspired. We want them to be inspired. We want them to get the inspiration early on and, and, and stay with the magic all the way through. And demonstrating something that, that works, I think, is very powerful. Just jumping to a slightly different example. Uh, when I was running a small company in the, in the 80s and the 90s, I could not get any investment from anyone until I had a thing on the table. And then when the thing was on the table, of course it was the wrong colour and all the rest of it, but it was the thing on the table that did something. And that was the magic. There was something about the way humans approach something where uh, some people are excited by talk, some people are, uh, are excited by vision, but it seems like the decision makers need something to see and to go with. And, and that's really a great way to focus both students and the entrepreneurs. So just following on from what you just mentioned there, Richard and, and Marcus as well, I think, I think for many, many years and decades, a, a lot of what we're talking about today has only happened in very, very controlled laboratories, again, in academic, academic and, and government institutions. Through this type of uh, quantum technology challenge and the, and the expectations or the demands of bringing the technology to the exhibition has, had to, has made, made the community think about what it, what's really required to get this technology out of the lab and into, a, into a, another building, into, a, into, a, into an exhibition building. So you can have, showcase your technology on a table and have those conversations because you're never really sure where those conversations are going to take you. But it's that mindset of taking the technology out of a, possibly a very controlled environment to a less controlled environment. But when we do that, who knows when, what type of conversa conversations we might have from both the materials and the sensor um, aspect um, through to the, the devices that, uh, that are needed to interrogate those samples. 
So just staying with academia for the moment, do we have the interest in the younger people or mature age students? Do we have the interest and do we have enough people who are interested to come in and, and provide these services, learn more and then build the products? Well, you could always argue you'd never have enough people because there's a lot of demands in society. Uh, but quantum captures people's imagination. Where Australia is incredibly fortunate that there's been a huge investment in quantum computing, which Marcus was referring to before. And that came from zero. So we're not lagging at all. And because then the word quantum is out and about, and people can use it for all sorts of reasons, but the people that are working in the field say, thank goodness there is something that captures the imagination of a wide cross-section of people, including students. So then you can talk about the other aspects, quantum communications, quantum sensing, and then the enabling aspects that, that Marcus Bazaar is referring to. So the, the sorts of things that I also do with work with, with uh, superconducting conductors, the sorts of cross-sections of conductors that might conduct, if they're made of copper, 100 amps, can conduct 1,000 amps if they're superconducting. That, that just really captures everybody's imagination. Is that what you're saying, Brent? Uh, look, I think I think we're, we're in a really strong position as a country. I think we we really have an opportunity to leverage significant uh, investment in quantum technologies over the last number of uh, decades. But I, I think one of the challenges is, is the is the adjacent uh, uh, skill sets that are required in addition to those with with uh, with skill sets in the quantum technology domain. It's a it takes it takes an army in, in a way. To, to create a quantum sensor, for example, or a quantum computer. And those skill sets are actually quite broad and quite diverse. And so in, on one hand, there is uh, yeah, a very, very narrow, uh, sorry, not narrow, but very sort of uh, uh, long history of, of knowledge and expertise that is, is required in, to do a deep dive in some of the um, specific quantum technology. But in addition to that, we do need those other technologies and, and adjacent areas to come along to support quantum technology to real, realise its full potential. Yeah, Brent, so that's, that's a good point. So I'd go a step further and say, what I like to say is that quantum technologies are 10% quantum and 90% really good classical technologies. And that's because quantum technologies have been built on 100 years of making things smaller and making things more precise, um, such that we've now reached a limit where we've made things so small in our semiconductor chips and so precise um, that we can now observe the very fundamental level of the, of the universe and manipulate it. And so what does that mean? To build a quantum technology, we need really good electrical engineers, really good mechanical engineers, really good photonics engineers, really good software engineers. Um, these are the people who now need to come together to build these technologies. We need the quantum purists, so the physicists who understand a quantum system, but then we need to convert all these other engineers across. And so let's now take a look at ARMY. So one thing we do in ARMY through the Quantum Next Generation program is that we actually give the challenge to defence personnel. And every year we've had multiple ARMY teams respond. And that's because there is a depth of organic talent in ARMY and broader defence who are engineers, who have been uh, 
trained in STEM. And we can get them to tackle a problem which they don't need the deep quantum knowledge, but they need to comprehend quantum, but apply it. And that stage is where you can really bring in a very broad base and you can bring in very talented people within the army today to really comprehend these technologies and what it means to them. Does a, an example come to mind of that success that you can talk about? Yeah, exactly. So uh, last year we had a team from the 10th Light Horse Regiment. Uh, and so they um, were developing a countermeasure technology to the technology that, that um, Grant was uh, talking about. So 10th Light Horse were given the challenge, okay, the adversary now has quantum magnetometers. So they can pick up the magnetic signatures of your Hawkeye vehicles and your other material that you carry around. As a reconnaissance unit, how are you going to prevent that? How are you going to keep doing your job in that case? And so this is an example of what Richard's working on in his types of countermeasures that he's developing. And 10th Light Horse um, had a group of very talented, very innovative soldiers, not physicists, um, who came together and they worked up their solution. And their solution was to take what was the Navy has been doing for 100 years with its ships and submarines and try to convert it across to land vehicles. And so where that's now arrived at is that they built a prototype using the Army makerspace. They demonstrated that it worked on a rifle size object. Uh, and then they said, right, we've got it started. And that's now been handed over to Richard to take to the next step, which is, OK, these guys have got it started. How can I now further develop this idea and assess what is possible with what these guys come up with? So shout out to the 10th Light Horse Brigade. Nice work. Where is that at, Richard? Well, it's just beginning. We are just looking from many different angles. So really that project is just getting underway. Mm -hmm. But I just wanted to hop into another point that, that Marcus made building on the semiconductor industry. I think it's a really important point. And also, if I can just use some, some specific technical language, when you look at the sorts of fabrications that are necessary for quantum. We again are very fortunate in Australia having a number of places around that can do quite a degree of, of good work to begin with for prototyping. Production may be a different matter, but there's a, a space between one nano and one micron, which is a very handy sort of a space. And so it's not one nano is knocking on the door of maybe 10 atoms and a micron is something that people can work with. That's called the mesospace in there, mesoscopic. And so when Marcus is referring to we need good engineers to do all these things and different disciplines, not only do they have to be proficient in order to bring quantum objects and systems in that space, but that space itself has its own version of quantum. It has a, a slightly different quantum response to one atom. And so this is a very rich area that will be very interesting in the future. Is there opportunity for neurodiverse people to come in and apply some of their amazing skills in this area? I'll go around the table again for responses. Brent, start with you, if you like. So I'd just like to give you an example. I'm not sure if this is where you're going, but uh, 
One example of the quantum technology or quantum sensing technology we're working on is in the wound healing space. For, uh, so we're actually working with clinicians and so we're taking this the quantum sensing material and working with clinicians together to make smart um, dressings that can take the guesswork out of when to change a bandage, for example. So to come back to your question, what sort of people do you need to bring, what sort of skill sets do we need to bring together? If you had asked me a question, three or four years ago, would, would we be working with these people on a quantum sensing technology? And I would have said no. Uh, so it's actually quite diverse people that are like-minded bringing those teams together to solve a problem, a problem that, that maybe wasn't there, uh, that they weren't necessarily fully aware of in the first place, or there's just maybe not an existing solution. So I think it's a diverse skill set that need to come together um, to solve very, very, very challenging problems. But, but with an open-ended or open open mindset, mindset to, to, uh, to, to new technologies. Richard, is this what you're seeing as well? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, Edison was the first person that actually had multidisciplinary inventors. Mm. Uh, and he had mathematicians and chemists and all sorts of things. In order to find the filament of a light bulb, he had to test tens of thousands of things before he found something that almost worked. So the skill set is important. The world view, the different world views fundamentally important. Marcus, let's bring this back into Army because Army is very much looking for diversity in the workforce at the moment. And this just represents a huge opportunity, doesn't it? Uh, absolutely. So um, I think this is across all the emerging technologies that Army is looking at. Uh, and that is that where these technologies will have the greatest transformative impact is at their intersection. So when quantum technologies are combined with robotics and autonomous systems, when they're combined with artificial intelligence and then alternate means of power generation and energy storage, the intersection between these technologies will be where the great transformative steps will happen. And as a result, the key to all this is bringing that diversity of thought, um, that diversity of focus, um, in a way that we can actually talk to each other and find our place so that we can do stuff rather than being frozen by the diversity. Uh, and I think we're starting to come with groups about how to do that. Yeah. How do you take a diverse team, align them, uh, and then they can do their part as part of the greater whole? We've spoken and mentioned the quantum technology challenge on a number of occasions already in the conversation. Let's have a, a, a let's put that into focus now. So there's you're focusing on three different elements for the challenge in 2023. Um, can you tell us a little bit about those, Marcus, and why you've chosen those? Yeah, so um, I'm really happy with this year's challenges. So these are my, these are some of my pet challenges. So um, the first challenge is how can we use quantum sensors to enhance how we monitor systems, to avoid failures, to increase performance, uh, and to also meet regulatory requirements that we, that we live with. Um, and so, uh, excitingly, one of the respondents is a quantum waybridge, which is a contactless waybridge, a way to measure the mass in a truck or an aeroplane or a boat without actually having to put it on scales, which is immensely useful. Um, one of the second respondents is actually what Brandt's new technology is. So maybe Brandt, do you want to describe sure. that one? Sure. Thanks, Marcus. Um, so, so I'm just going to come back a little bit, if I can, to the sensing material that really underpins the vast majority of our work, and it's and it's very special diamond that fluoresces 
um, in the presence of, of optical illumination. If we shine light on to this material, it fluoresces and gives off light. That's sensitive to magnetic fields, temperature, stress and strain. So in terms of the area that we're, we're, uh, we've, we've addressed for this year's technology challenge is what happens if you can integrate that material into uh, a, a platform or onto a platform? So, uh, so through laser cladding additive manufacturing at RMIT University, we're able, we've actually been able to demonstrate that we can incorporate these fluorescent materials, diamond particles, into, uh, into additive manufacturing metal uh, devices and objects and show that we can actually detect those fluorescent signatures from that material and remotely read out and monitor information from that particular object. So we're extremely excited about being uh, here at the Quantum Technology Challenge uh, for 2023. And we're very interested to, uh, to have those conversations at this event to explore what the potential opportunities are with the technology. We, we see a few opportunities um, but we're very interested to have those conversations to identify areas that may, we may not have even thought of. Yeah, and so Brad, it's very exciting that technology and its potential to um, give us early warning that things are going wrong on parts of, of our various systems, uh, like helicopters, like um, armoured vehicles, like other sorts of vehicles that we could otherwise not detect um, because we wouldn't be able to incorporate sensors directly into those components and read them out. So um, I'm really looking forward to seeing um, on, on what you guys deliver for us. Thanks, Marcus. Um, and just on that as well, so it's one thing to actually incorporate the material in the object or on the object, but we also need, we need very smart uh, technology to probe and, and monitor that object. And so at this event, this particular year, not only have we got the materials, but we've got the devices to the probing and the monitoring as well. So sort of we need to take, sort of look at both, both sides of the story here to, to take advantage of this quantum sensing opportunity. So one of the other challenges this year uh, is my pet favourite, um, which is um, how to break a quantum computer. And so this is a countermeasure against quantum computers. Uh, and this is um, uh, how could you attack a quantum computer and how could you defend a quantum computer? Uh, and so the respondents this year is we're seeing uh, one team uh, focus more on the defence side, which is um, how do I actually know uh, that quantum computer is the quantum computer I know. So how do I fingerprint a quantum computer such that it can give me something that can't be faked that I can go, yes, okay, I know who you are. I know who I'm talking to. Um, and that comes by a beautiful acronym called QPUFFS. Uh, and so <laughs> keep an eye out for QPUFFS. Um, uh, other respondents are focusing on uh, the attack side, which is if I've got multiple people using one quantum computer and one of them's gone bad, one of them's a bad actor, how can that bad actor feed jobs to that quantum computer which will mess up everyone else's jobs in a way that's very hard to understand how are they messing, is there someone messing something up? Why am I getting the wrong answers? So that sort of nefarious player who is of sleight of hand wrecking everyone else's game. So that's uh, one of the other respondents. There's big smiles all around the table here, isn't there? It's almost it's like a concept of fake news, isn't it? When you're pushing those sorts of messages in to get a result that is not true, that upsets what happens from there. 
Yeah, so yes, quantum <laughs> fake news. I'll have to pass that one on. <laughs> it might be able to compete with Q puffs. But but we talked about wow factors before. As you wander around the floor for this year's challenge, I mean every time you turn around and even for you, Richard and Brant as well, even though you're part of it, there just must be a wow factor every time you look in a new direction. Um, there's there's so many opportunities to, to incorporate things. Just the example that Beth's been talking about this today. But also, just just going back to Marcus's example, the flip side of that is that it also teaches or helps people understand how you can operate with quantum computing in diverse circumstances. So the great difficulty is contaminated qubits or however you like to describe them. And so this pushed pressure then on the people that are writing the algorithms, which is traditionally called error correction, and we all use error correction now. And so even though it's a, it's, it's a good example from a sort of a conflict situation, it's also a really good example of, of saying, gee, well, if you can cope with that under those circumstances, that's actually correcting a basic flaw, technically. And so when I walk around the floor looking at all the different technologies, I'm thinking about all the different applications they can end up in. And there's just so many applications where this can end up in. I mean, for example, the, the, the SI system we all, we all work with, you know, we don't have pound shillings and pence and, and furlongs and all that anymore. So traditionally it used to be maybe a little bit of a joke, but it was true. There was one metre in a glass jar in Paris, which represented a metre and a kilogram similarly. All those fundamental units are being converted to quantum units so that they're independent of physical things. So in superconductors, when you make a thing called a Josephson junction, it very precisely oscillates at a certain voltage. And it's relatively easier to measure frequency than it is to measure voltage. So the SI unit for voltage now is based on a quantum mechanical phenomena of superconductivity. And so all those things are changing from our, all the things like, does, will this plug go into the socket? You know, it's, it's really starting to spread through the community. So you look at all these applications, you don't know where they're going to end up. Yeah, yeah, and I have no doubt that's what you're seeing too, Brad. Oh, look, most definitely. Uh, yeah, it's, it's been, been amazing to be part of this quantum technology challenge and really just to show what, what potential and what opportunities are out there. Um, when teams uh, come together and put their mind to a particular challenge. And walking around the event, it's, it's, it's even got me, me thinking about other areas that we could be exploring based on the conversations we have and, and the demos and, and, the, and the products that we see uh, on the exhibition floor. Yeah. Richard, I'm going to come back to you. You recently mentored a quantum next generation winner who then went on to partake in the quantum technology challenge last year. Can you tell us what that experience was like for you as the mentor and then for the mentee and what you think they took away from it? Well, it was an opportunity for them to be aware of the bigger world that they're operating in. Um, when students are focused, PhD students are focused, they're very focused at what they're doing their supervisors encourage them to be very focused and not to go down too many rabbit holes. But to come into an environment where there is a, a sense of individual competition, but teamwork, 
And this is, this is unique. You know, this is one of the things that the army brings with it automatically. In an academic environment, not necessarily everybody's a team player. In the army environment, it's very competitive for all the reasons that Marcus has outlined. But at the end of the day, they're all team players. And for a student to be part of that, that's that it has an effect on them. They can see, oh, that's interesting. You know, there might be a place for me in here somewhere. Mm. And so it's quite encouraging. And so what do you think the next steps are for Army to best use and understand quantum technology? So I think we're still in this phase of let's rapidly find the best application of this technology. So we're still in that phase. However, as we're doing that, what we are finding is that we are starting to see pull-through from broader defence and army. So the people who are used to buying helicopters and ships and uh, ration packs are now looking to us and going, are there things there that we should actually accelerate and pull through? Mm. And so that's been my main effort this year, is to see if we can make that last chink in the chain, which is to go from the challenging and stimulating the community through to identifying an application of value and a technology that could deliver to it to then pushing that to the next step, which is, yeah, actually, we reckon it could do it. And we actually know how valuable this is to do that last bit, which is, OK, well, let's actually get it to there. Let's actually get it to the point where it can deliver that value. So that last step of getting it to the point of delivering value is what I've been focusing on this year. And hopefully I'll have some good stories to tell. Absolutely, I'm sure you will. Final question for each of you, Richard, we'll start with you. What does or could quantum technology look like, let's say, five years' time and then 20 years' time? Oh, yes, well, you'd be a very brave man to take up that challenge. <laughs> so in five years' time, there will be many more examples of it. What, what Marcus is saying, I think that's... That's the way forward. Even though it's a little bit um, overhyped in different areas, the advantage of it being somewhat on everybody's lips is that there will be opportunities to try lots of stuff. Some of it will not succeed for the right reasons. Some of it will not succeed for the wrong reasons, and it may come back again. There's many, many things that come from early developments that there's not appropriate infrastructure around to make the thing work. And then as quantum infrastructure, the, the enabling infrastructure, the manufacturing infrastructure that, that, that comes with, with the quantum world. And more importantly, the, 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 uh, the worker base, the knowledge base comes in. Instead of people sitting around thinking about all groovy apps for drinking coffee through your nostrils or something or other, then that will be a conversation about quantum applications and then the richness starts. And that's where I think the acceleration will begin. I would say in, in the next five years, I really think that uh, quantum sensing uh, devices, materials will become more mainstream. I think quantum sensing is the area where where we, we may see um, uh, that 
the full potential realised in that sort of time frame. And then I think over the 20 year time frame, I think we need to look more towards quantum uh, uh, communication, quantum cryptography, and then more towards quantum computing. I think quantum computing is, is uh, there's a lot of effort, there's a lot of effort within Australia and globally, uh, but there's potentially a longer time frame to realise to the full potential of quantum computing. So I think in the first five years, I'd say quantum sensing is, the, is what we'll see um, possibly in our autonomous vehicles, possibly in the home, possibly um, in society. Uh, so I think there's a lot of potential there in the next five, five to 20 years. So Marcus, through the lens of Army, uh, what does it look like in those timeframes for you? Yeah, so um, Army has uh, made this very explicit. So in our quantum technology roadmap, we have written down what we think the future is. And we've put that into those horizons of five years, um, five to 10 years, 10 plus years. And we've put down what do we think the use cases will be and what do we think the technologies will be that will mature across those different timelines. And so people should go and check it out and, and have a look at it and see how we're thinking and prioritizing things. For us, um, it's pretty clear right at the moment. And that is that uh, I'm willing to say that in the next three to five years, we will have quantum sensors employed by the army to do work in the next three to five years and on a, on a regular basis. Um, and then in the period of five to 10 years, this is when I actually expect to see the first quantum computers being used uh, by the army to do very select tasks. Um, the thing that quantum computing brings is that it not only has military application, but it has an incredible diversity of civilian applications and a, and a huge uh, civilian market that's mm. behind it. And so um, quantum sensing also has diversity, but potentially not the same market pool that quantum computing has. And so that's why we see billions of dollars worldwide being invested in quantum computing. And so that's why my expectations are that quantum computing will mature quite quickly. Um, and then finally, communications in that 10 plus year, because my reason being, that it relies on sensors and computers to be around before you can start connecting them up to create a quantum internet. Sure. Well, gentlemen, it has been incredibly interesting. Thank you so much for your work to start off with, but then your insights over the last 60 minutes or so. Um, Richard, Brandt and Marcus, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thanks.